said, uh, my name is Brandon Groza, and I am a member of the teaching team here at Antioch. And I don't know if any of you had a chance to read Ken Weitzman, our lead pastor's blog this morning, but it, it uh, recounted a story of something that happened to him this morning. He's over in Africa, obviously, and uh, yeah, I don't know how many of you know this, but he lost his luggage on the way to Africa. And uh, he was all set and scheduled to speak at Gaba Church in, in Kampala, or just outside of the capital city of Uganda, thousands and thousands member church without any clothing, um, without anything proper to wear. Obviously, he's not speaking without any clothing. <laughs> so they're big on formality there, and you need to wear a coat. And I, apparently, one of the uh, pastoral staff there went out and, and got Ken a double-breasted gold jacket suit thing. <laughs> Coupled with a 10-year-old tie, so, and, and I guess a pair of khaki pants. So I'm sure there'll be more to, uh, to that story, and I really look forward to the pictures. So, <laughs> Anyway, this morning we were talking about the difference between wants and needs. Those things that we absolutely desire and focus on, but are not necessities, and those things that we cannot live without and the role God plays in our struggle to differentiate between the two, between wants and needs. And so I have some examples on the screen for us helping us differentiate between wants and needs. This is a want, a need. <laughs> Wherein this would be a need. This is something to live healthy, complete, full lives. We need to be eating something like this. Well, what about this next slide? Definitely most of us would say a need, but an excess drive, an excessive drive towards something like this can get in the way of other things that are needs like quality family time. If you hold this for a second, this is probably the cheesiest picture I could have possibly found. Not only is it Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner, which doesn't necessarily represent quality family time for us, um, if you look at what I think is the mother-in-law, while they're praying, her eyes are open. And she's kind of mean-mugging the daughter-in-law there. I'm not sure if you can see that. Classic. Next slide. Some of us, some of us just want some relaxation time. It's our desire to be lazy in a way. Or, or maybe some of us know things we need to do, but we take the easy way out. When in reality, this is probably what we'd be better off doing. Nothing about that looks fun, though, does it? Finally, especially if you're a high school boy, this is what you, you really desire, you want this, but you would be better off, and really all you need is a 1994 Plymouth Sundance Coupe. You can see a perfect example of that car out in the parking lot driven by our youth pastor, Kip Jones. Uh, this morning, we're talking about the difference between wants and needs. God is in the business of giving us what we need, not necessarily what we want. And a couple thousand years ago, the people of Israel were dealing with this fact face-to-face, -face, com coming face-to-face -face with the reality that God is about giving His people what they need, not necessarily what they want. I'm going to show you a clip right now of something they wanted, and then we'll talk about its significance.
Drop your weapons. Gladiator, the Emperor has asked for you. I'm at the Emperor's service. Deserve, Spaniard. I don't think there's ever been a gladiator to match you. As for this young man, he insists you are Hector reborn. What was it, Hercules? Why doesn't the hero reveal himself and tell us all your real name? You do have a name. My name is Gladiator. How dare you show your back to me? Slave! Will remove your helmet and tell me your name? My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the north, general of the Felix Legions. Loyal servant to the true emperor, Marcus Aurelius. Father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. I know if most of us had it our way, we'd just watch that for the rest of the morning, so. The Jewish people of the first century were suffering under the foreign occupation of the Roman Empire, coupled with corrupt, uh, corrupt religious leaders from their own people, and they are dying for someone to save them from that situation. And the Old Testament passages that promised a Savior, promised someone who would deliver them, all really fit the bill of a guy who looked like Maximus Decimus Meridius. And so this is the guy they're looking for. The guy to lead the revolt against the Roman Empire, kicking the Romans out of the land of Israel, giving them their autonomy and their freedom back. That is, remember, what they wanted. What did they get? They got what they needed. They got Jesus of the Gospels. We'll throw the first passage we're going to talk about up here this morning from Mark chapter 1. So I want you to picture Jesus uh, like the original audience that he, to which he spoke pictured him. I want you to picture him this morning like you're conducting an interview. You're going to be Jesus' supervisor and you're interviewing him to see if he's going to be able to fulfill this role of savior of the Jewish people well. If he, in effect, is the guy for you. And so... Jesus sits down and he hands you his resume and you see right on the top of the resume that his name is Jesus, Yeshua in Aramaic. And you think, okay, this is pretty good. His name connotes salvation or one who saves. This could be our guy. This could be the guy we're longing for to save us, to deliver us from this foreign power. Well, 
Tell us a little bit about your, yourself, Jesus. Tell us a little about your, let's say, philosophy of conquest. And these are some of the words that Jesus speaks. The text says, He came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. And so you're listening to this language, Jesus speaking these words, and you're thinking, okay, he's proclaiming good news. All right, he's talking about this kingdom concept. He seems to be a man of action because he's talking about it being today that this is coming into fulfillment. This business about repenting and believing, that's not necessarily uh, military conquest type language, is it? No, but that's okay. That's okay. You're talking about this kingdom concept. You're talking about the time being now. So then we look at our next passage. Jesus has gone into the synagogue in northern Israel, and he pulls out a passage from the book of Isaiah, and he begins to read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. And you're conducting the interview and you're thinking to yourself, all right, all right, Jesus is talking about some pretty cool things here. The spirit of the Lord is resting upon me. Definitely key to someone who's going to deliver the people of God. He's anointed, oh, right there with the kings of old and those who delivered the people. Good news to the poor, not necessarily sure that's military language, conquest language, but all right. Proclaim release to the captives. Sight to the blind, not sure, but oppressed going free, release to the captives. This could be our guy. Remember those Jewish people have been waiting hundreds and hundreds of years for deliverance. And this guy with a name that means one who saves shows up and you as the Jewish people start interviewing him based on not only his name, not only what he's saying, but also what he's doing. And the dominant theme in Jesus' ministry, the dominant concept he is trying to present to the people of Israel is this concept of the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? Well, the kingdom of God has many characteristics, but effectively it is like any other kingdom. It is the domain of God's rule. It is the reaches of God's authority. And so if you're taking notes, you can write down kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? It is the domain of God's authority, his rule. It is where God rules. Jesus communicated this kingdom of God in two ways. Through actions, in other words, in his miracles and his healings, and through teachings. And one of the mediums he uses to communicate uh, this teaching about the kingdom of God is the form of a parable. And we are in, at Antioch Church, a series on the parables of Jesus. And a parable essentially is a comparison between two concepts. And the purpose of comparing these two concepts in parabolic form in a parable is to illuminate one of those two concepts. Our parable this morning comes to us from Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 to 32. And so if you have a Bible, you could go ahead and turn there. If not, I have it here up on the screen. This parable comes in the third of Matthew's five large teaching blocks. And so Matthew is telling the story of Jesus' life. It is the narrative of the life of Jesus. And he includes five large blocks of Jesus' instruction especially having to do with the kingdom of God. 
You're familiar with some of these teaching blocks. One of them comes in chapters 5 through 7, and it's known as the Manifesto, or the Constitution of the Kingdom. Or maybe another name we're more familiar with would be the, the uh, Sermon on the Mount. The last of these five large teaching blocks found within the book of Matthew comes to us in chapters 24 and 25, where Jesus is instructing his audience on things that will come in the future. Well, here's a side question for you. Why does Matthew choose to include five large blocks of Jesus' teaching? If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you remember that God's instruction in the Old Testament took the form of what? Five large teaching blocks known as Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so there's an interesting comparison between what Jesus, uh, what Matthew rather is trying to say Jesus is communicating to the people of God. Well, let's read our passage this morning. He put to them another parable. And he said, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. So the concept is fairly simple. There is a farmer with mustard seeds, small, you can hardly see them. He scatters them in his field, and one day it becomes large. It grows. It becomes something, um, something so large that birds can rest in their branches, in its branches. And so this concept, the main theme here, of course, is something that starts small, but then becomes something large. Chapter 13, this third of the five teaching blocks, is all about the kingdom of God and parables teaching about that kingdom. And the common motif or the common theme here that we see over and over again is the kingdom of God compared to something that is small and then becomes something large, something that is hidden and quiet and easy to miss and something that becomes extremely large, a force, if you will, to be reckoned with, something that you cannot miss. Why tell this parable? Remember our dominant theme this morning. God is in the business of giving us what we need. So there's some reason Jesus tells this parable. There's some reason that the majority of parables in which he is instructing on the kingdom of God contain this same theme. The kingdom of God. Okay, the kingdom of God, what is that? It is the rule and reign of God. It's something that starts small and then becomes something we can't miss. And the wheels are turning. Why would he do that? Why does the kingdom of God have an inconspicuous beginning and then become something large? Why can't God just rush into the scene and really take care of things, rip open the canvas of the sky and start making a difference in our world? Why does God's activity here have to be something that starts small and is easy to miss? It is because of the apparent inconsistency between Jesus' message and his actions. Remember, he's being interviewed by the Jewish people. Are you the guy? Are you the one that's going to come and deliver us? And they're, they're really ticking off their list, their sheet of paper, with all of the qualifications, with all of the characteristics of what the Messiah is to be, and Jesus fits that one. Oh, because his name means salvation. Not quite as cool as Maximus, but it'll work. Jesus is talking about this kingdom concept that must include conquering. 
If you're to have a kingdom, you have to have an army and you have to have expansion. Okay, check that list. Check that box. But there's an apparent inconsistency all of a sudden between Jesus' message and his actions. See, he is preaching the kingdom of God. He is preaching the rule and reign of God. But what is not happening? There's no military expansion. There are no swords. There are no acts of violence. There are no lives being taken. And all of a sudden, Jesus' supervisors are asking themselves, whoa, maybe this isn't our guy. Maybe this guy has missed it. Maybe we have missed it and hired the wrong guy. There's an apparent inconsistency between his message and his actions. But we know Jesus. We know Jesus doesn't say things without reason. And so we start to think, as they probably did in the first century, all right, kingdom of God, something that starts small, inconspicuous, easy to miss, and then becomes something you could not possibly miss. Remember the historical setting of Jesus' day. We want this guy to deliver us physically from the hand of the Romans and the corrupt religious authorities. Well, here's the question. What if Jesus actually is who he says he is, the representative of God, God himself, so he obviously has a pretty good grasp on what the kingdom of God is. What if the kingdom of God is all about the poor, all about the outcasts, all about the marginalized, and not at all about military expansion or, or money or power? You start to think about that for a second if you're in the ancient world. What if it has nothing to do with all the characteristics I would usually associate a kingdom with? What if this kingdom of God, this rule, the reaches of God's authority, what if it's completely different? Remember, God is in the business of what? He's in the business of giving us what we need. There is a disconnect between our expectations of what God should give us, not a disconnect in Jesus' message and his actions. Our expectations of what God should give us, our wants in relation to God, is where we find the disconnect and the reason, especially in this passage, these individuals have a problem with Jesus and what he's doing. But back to our parable. Something that starts small and then becomes something large. What does this do? It very conveniently explains why Jesus could proclaim this kingdom of God, which will one day include a characteristic of God ruling physically on the earth. But yet not at this time. Jesus can preach the kingdom of God and say, it's come in with my ministry, but it is not yet fully here. He could proclaim the kingdom and yet there would still be this reality of evil in the world, of a Roman occupying power, of corrupt religious leaders. You guys see that? It starts small at the beginning. Is it there? You bet. Has the growth process started? You bet. Will it one day become a force to be reckoned with, unmistakable? You bet. But at this time, in the ministry of Jesus, it's just a seed. In effect, what Jesus is saying is that in his life and ministry, we, have the, we do not have the bush. 
Well, we do not have the tree, but we do have the seeds. The kingdom of God had come in the presence through Jesus. It had come in God's presence through Jesus. And the justice of feeding the hungry, in welcoming the stranger, in visiting the sick, in paying attention to kids, forgiving debts, in acts of peacemaking, in welcoming people like prostitutes and tax collectors, in healing the blind, the lame, and the poor. This is how the presence of God, this is how the rule of God and the reign of God is coming into the world through the ministry of Jesus. This is what the kingdom of God looks like according to Jesus. But where's the disconnect? There's a disconnect between what the Jews of Jesus' day felt they needed, in other words, wanted, and what God was saying you actually need. You actually need a complete restructuring of your entire outlook on life. It is not about finances, money, expansion, gaining more and more violence. It is not about kicking the Roman occupying force out of Israel. Those are not the characteristics at this time you need to focus on when you are concerning yourself with God's rule and reign, not only on this earth, but in your own life. Jesus is giving Israel what they needed because God is in the business of giving us what we need. The critique of Jesus towards his opponents comes in the fact that they are missing this. They can't seem to see the seeds because they are so focused on the tree and the manifestation of these trees or these large bushes that they completely miss the smaller things, the beginnings of it. One of Jesus' closest confidants, someone he respected a whole lot, actually a relative of him, John the Baptist, falls prey to this. If, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 7, verse 18. We're only going to read a verse or two there, and I'll recount most of the story for you here now. John the Baptist is in jail. Remember, he was a religious revolutionary making way for Jesus and Jesus' ministry, preaching the gospel as in, a, in a sense um, that would come before Jesus to make Jesus' way and presentation of the gospel that much easier, to prepare the hearts and the minds of the people. So John the Baptist spoke of Jesus saying things like, the one who comes after me, this Messiah character, I won't even be worthy to tie or untie his sandals. So John the Baptist is someone who has a great deal of respect for Jesus, and likewise, Jesus respects John the Baptist a great deal. At this point, John the Baptist is in jail, he is in prison, and he is about to lose his life by losing his head. So the reality of what John the Baptist has been preaching, the consequences of his stand in life are getting pretty serious. And he's getting reports from his disciples on what Jesus is doing, the activity of Jesus through John the Baptist's own disciples. And so his disciples are informing him, hey, Jesus, uh, the guy with the name that means salvation, the guy preaching the kingdom of God, he's out there and... Uh, all he's doing is hanging out with kids and, and healing outcasts and accepting people. I'm not sure when he's going to get this political revolution, military revolution conquest started, but it's not now. And so what does John the Baptist do? He says to his disciples, go and ask Jesus, and this is pretty brutal, if he is the one to come, 
or should we look for another one? And so John the Baptist's disciples go to Jesus, and Jesus is actually out ironically doing those things we just talked about, actually living out the principles of the kingdom of God he espoused. And they ask him, are you the one to come, or should we wait for another one? Should we look for another one? And the passage is absolutely brilliant. And our English text really doesn't grasp what's going on there in the original language. But Jesus, at the very moment those words are coming out of the mouths of those disciples of John the Baptist, asking if he's the one, if he's doing what he should be doing, this is what Jesus does. Jesus cures many people of diseases, plagues, evil spirits, gives sight to the blind, restores the legs of the lame. Right as John the Baptist's disciples are asking him if you're the one. Do you get that picture? It's kind of difficult in the text in our English Bibles, but literally, John the Baptist's disciples come up to Jesus, they start asking this question, and Jesus turns and begins to do exactly what they're asking Jesus, in effect, telling Jesus you shouldn't be doing. And so Jesus says this, After doing these healings, verse 22, he answered the disciples of John, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who does not take offense at me. In other words, count yourself lucky if this is what you expect the kingdom of God to be about. Because you're right. Count yourself lucky if you're not stuck here focusing on what you think you need from God, the wants you have about how God is going to work in the world, but instead you're focusing on the things you actually need. The seeds grow quietly. God is not working here in dramatic ways through the life of Jesus. It's interesting, those who wanted, uh, those who wanted Jesus to lead an attack on the Roman garrison would be disappointed. It wasn't going to happen. That's not the way God is working through Jesus. But nonetheless, this kingdom had dawned in the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus. It had started to come up over the horizon. At this point, it can still be missed, though, just like the morning sun. Its view can be obscured by a mountain or a building. You, you can miss it. Its effects are there, but really only to those who have eyes to see. Jesus is saying, the kingdom of God has started with my ministry. One day, it will be so bright, you will not be able to gaze upon it. It will be so powerful, a force to be reckoned with. But right now, right now, it is small and easy to miss and inconspicuous. Remember our parable, something that starts small, a seed in a field, ends up growing into be something large. Remember the fact that God is in the business of giving us what we need, not necessarily what we want. Well, what happens when we recognize that this is what God's rule and reign in our lives and in this world is all about? I mean, what happens when you get this and you actually start restructuring your priorities and start looking out for what you need from God more than what you want from Him? I think we see that God is all about giving us what we need. 
He is in the business of giving us what we need. The question we have to ask ourselves, I think, based on this passage this morning, is the same question Jews of 2,000 years ago asked themselves. Is Jesus the right guy for the job? Do I have the right, in effect, checklist in my hands? Or maybe another way to put it, you ask yourself about the kind of God you serve. Do you serve the God you want? Or do you serve the God you need? What are some of the characteristics of the God you want? I think for me, one of them is a God who is safe. I think a God who's into quick fixes. I think a God who is into immediate gain and immediate pleasure. That's the kind of God I want. I'm into that. I'm into a God who is safe, who's into quick fixes, who's there to come as soon as I need him to any situation at my beck and call. What about the God that I need? I think I need a God who's dangerous. I think I need a God who is into... Sorry about how small this is. That is into long-term gain. I think I need a God who is concerned about building character through adversity. I think that's the kind of God I need. And if you think about your life, you've probably, you've probably realized this in some way or another. That this God, this God you want, doesn't in the end do you a whole lot of good. I'm always fascinated by people who think Christians are boring. Because Christians who have actually encountered this God, there's nothing boring about them. This God is willing to pull the carpet right out from underneath your feet. Knock you flat on your face so that you see the world through his eyes. This God is dangerous. A life lived serving this God is exciting, ever-changing. Not so necessarily for this one. I would say that the majority of the world, and in fact the majority of believers, serve this God. The safe God. The quick-fix God. The immediate gains God. I think that it's this God, though, the God we need, that stops us from completely surrendering our lives. Why is that? Because we're scared. We're scared of what it would take to be humbled like we need to be humbled. We're scared of what it would look like to surrender actually to God, to gain a life that we could never gain on our own. We're afraid of that process of really giving over to Him. And so we continue to be sated with this God. He'll do. This God, though, 
is not into your timetable. Uh, he's not necessarily into your agendas or your methods to carrying out the things you think need to be carried out. He's into his thing. And the reality, if you think about it, is that is exactly what he should be into. He's into giving you what you need, not necessarily what you want. He's into satisfying an area of you that is so deep and so far down, you don't even really understand why you need to be satisfied, and you certainly don't understand how to be satisfied. And that's why we look to the God who is concerned for our needs, not necessarily the one who is concerned for our wants. I think that we must daily decide between these two gods. Daily ask ourselves, am I serving the God I want right now, or am I serving the God I need? Am I looking at a kingdom that starts small, where I may not be able to see all of the manifestations I want to see? Or am I serving someone who's going to give me the quick fix, the in and the out, short-term gain? It is a daily decision we must make. And so back to our parable. Something that starts small and ends up becoming something big. I think there are seeds of God in each of our lives. Don't miss the seeds. Because you're looking at the tree. Don't miss the things that God is doing in your life that are small, that don't seem as big as they should be, and trade those for some short-term thing that looks big, and really when you grab a hold of it, it's not even there. Because the things God will grow in your life are of infinite more value than the things that you could gain and bring into your life yourself. Uh, at Antioch Church, we are passionate about introducing you to this God. And far be it from us to say that we have figured out this division or this struggle between wants and needs we're definitely on the journey, we're on the road, and we would love to introduce you to him if you have yet to meet him. And so please see me or see some of our other pastoral staff. This God is radical. This God will change your life. And I think, once you've met this God, you'll never go back. Right now I'm going to pray and we'll, uh, we'll take the offering, have the worship team come back up. Father, we thank you for being a God who is uh, outside of our understanding. We thank you for our circumstances and trust you that whatever they are, however difficult they may be, we know that you are looking out for our best interests, that you're concerned with giving us what we need and not necessarily what we want. God, we praise you for another day here in beautiful Central Oregon. We pray that you would be in our relationships, that you would be on our minds and that we would daily choose you and your insight and your understanding of the world over our own. In your name we pray. Amen.